0: Let's start with, with an interesting <coughs> exercise. Raise your hand if you're left-handed. Esti, and you are not, you're raising your right hand. Yeah, I know I know how it is. That was going to be my test. I wanted to make sure who was actually raising their left-handed, which, raising their left hand if they said that they were left-handed. You had your left hand up, didn't you, Andrew? Yeah, OK, cool. All right, that's good. I just want to make sure everyone, these are genuine lefty. Because my message today might come across a bit harsh on you lefties, Um, but nowhere near as rough as history has been on the left-handed half of the race, or third of the race, or whatever you guys are, mini minority part of the race. Um, Because this message is for all um, weak losers. Okay. Not just, not just the lefties, though, the right-handed weak losers as well, okay? That sentence probably sounds a little bit over-inflammatory, but I've got all your attention now, so you're going to have to stay invested to make sure I didn't just get up here on Sunday morning and call you all weak losers. So let's open up our, our, our Bibles to Judges chapter 3. And now our passage today has some really quality coffee cup verses, some really quality um, ladies devotional verses in it. <laughs> So, stay on the lookout for those too. Some of you probably picked up who our Megas person is today, who, are, who the person we're going to meet God Almighty through this morning is. Um, and that person is the second recorded judge of Israel. And he's a guy by the name of, if you're an Aussie, Ehud. But I want to, I'm going to keep saying Ehud, I know I am, but I really want to say something like Ehud, which is probably how his name's meant to be pronounced. So, uh, be gentle on me if I don't say Ehud the whole time. So as he's the first um, of our mega people in the book of Judges, I thought we'd just briefly work out what Judges as a book is all about. As you can probably tell, it's a book about judges, okay? <laughs> not, not judges in like the, the common sense that you think of judges, like in a courtroom with a funny wig with a gavel, um, you know, the, the legal head honchos or whatever. Not those kind of dudes. But think of these judges as more kind of like, uh, like kind of like tribal leaders, that God rose up at certain times to lead the people um, through, like, out of hardships that they were going through at the time. Because remember, they, um, the, remember the, the Israelites. They did a really, really rubbish job of of getting rid of all the Canaanites out of their land when they came. Like Joshua died, and they just didn't bother, you know, finishing the conquest of the land. So they're living in and around all these other Canaanite tribes, and. These Canaanite tribes flare up every now and again, cause problems for them, um, oppress them, you know, start wars with them, lead them into all sorts of bad things. So that's what they're doing. Then these judges rise up every now and again to lead the people out of that, um, and then they have these periods of peace. So the general pattern of the book of Judges goes something like this. The people, are, the people start rejecting God's ways, and so they, they start fooling in with all the evil practices of the Canaanite tribes and everyone around them. And then those selfish, God-rejecting ways then sort of lead into all sorts of problems and oppression that rise up around them through the Canaanite tribes that are thorn in their side kind of thing. And then the people realize that they've done something wrong. They realize they've gone astray. So they cry out to the Lord for help. And then the Lord, in His mercy, He rises up a judge to lead the people out of the problems that they're having. And then... Following that is usually like these great, amazing periods of peace, okay, where everyone's, you know, um, you know at, at, at peace, uh, everything's well, you know, everyone's, you know, worshipping the Lord until people get comfortable and start sliding off the other edge and then start going away from the Lord, start throwing in with the Canaanite tribes again. So rinse and repeat. This is the cycle that Judges does, okay? Rinse and repeat through the whole book. So, in many ways, like the book of Judges. It's kind of like our story. Think of the book of Judges like our story. It's our way of chasing after things that bring destruction into our lives. And then we realize that that's not the way to go. And we remember and then we cry out to the Lord. And then his grace gushes into our lives anew. Okay, so that's kind of how we see the book of Judges happening. So let's meet God through this Ehud character. Heads up as we read, though, this first um, cyclic pattern that I talked about in Judges. It, sh- it shows is very clearly in the start of our passage. So let's read Judges chapter 3, and we'll start in verse 12. And the people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself, this is Eglon, he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took position of the city of Palms, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. All right, so here's that first part of the Judges. People turn away from God. Um, Problems come their way, this time in the form of their great, 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 sort of uncle lots, um, incestuous kids that he had from his daughters, remember off in the cave, the Moabites and the Ammonites. And then they're helped by these other guys, which are from great, 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 great Uncle Esau's um, descendants, the Amalekites, okay? Let's keep on. Verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Ehud, the son of giddah the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Alright, so we're going to camp on this verse for a little bit here. Contained in this verse, alright, is a strange paradox, alright, and, and I think the biblical writers have put it here to make us go, ooh, that's weird, cause us to sort of sit up and look at this verse and go, hey, something more is going on here. This is, this is really weird. And did anyone spot what this contradiction thing is in this verse? What's the ironic sort of contradiction in this verse? Here it is, ready? Ahud the Benjaminite. Now, this is probably funny because my name's Ben, Benjamin. So this is probably why I picked this up. The Benjaminite, a left-handed man. So I'm a Benjamin, I'm a right-handed man. But I know that Benjamin means son of my right hand. All right, so here's in this tribe of, named after the right hand, this dude that's a left-handed guy. All right? So these details are juxtaposed to make us look and go, huh, what's going on? That Something more is at play here, okay? So let's, let's dive in. Because scholars say, like I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I thought this was weird, started looking into it. The Hebrew guys say that they don't, the, the, the Hebrew wording here is not so much the fact that he used his left hand, but that his right hand was unusable, or that his right hand was like bound up in a way. It was, he, he couldn't use his right hand. So I'm pretty sure, it's pretty likely that there's something else at play here other than the fact that he was just born with his brain favouring his left side, okay? Because the ancient world, as we talked about in the intro, the ancient world is really harsh on lefties, okay? All these lefties, I'm glad you're not in the, in the, the ancient world because the ancient Mesopotamians, and the ancient Egyptians and those sort of cultures that were around at this you know, time of the biblical narrative, um, they all understood the right hand side of the body to be the good side it was the superior it was the strong side the right hand was used for ceremonies the right hand was used for healing the right hand was used for eating those sorts of things the left hand side however was used for things like curses and it was used for all bad things like killing it was associated with deception and evil sorts of things all right so that's the left side and interestingly when they look at the Egyptian pictures in their pyramids, the Egyptians always portrayed themselves as right handers. But all their enemies are all lefties. Okay? So that's how these, cult, these ancient cultures viewed the right and the left thing. So the Bible, being written in and around these times to these cultures as well, refers to positions of power at God's right hand, doesn't it? Jesus, when he's talking in Matthew about you know, Judgment Day, when he's separating the sheep from goats, like the sheep, his people come to his right side. The goats, the people that don't know him, are all on his left side, okay? So there's this idea of being like, as left as being wrong is a very strong cultural narrative, okay? So um, the idea of the right hand was just right, okay? And the left was, was wrong. So someone living in that culture, if they had the use of their right hand, why would they not train themselves to use their right hand. Why would they not? Because I know, like this old story, one of my mum's old crazy uncles, he used to tell me this story about, he, he was born left-handed, but back when they used to use you know, quills and whatever, um, he used to write with his left hand, make a mess of all his writing, he used to get the cane. So he made himself become a right-hander and then he favoured his right side of his body because his brain adapted. So it's possible that he could have done that, Ehud, eh, Ehud could have done that, okay? So there's something else here at play, there's something else deeper as to why Ehud is a left hander still as an adult. Like maybe his hand didn't work properly from birth, maybe he had an injury, he was disabled in some sort of way, I'm not sure. The Bible doesn't exactly tell us, it doesn't say why he couldn't use his right hand, it just says he's a left hander, which shows us that he was looked down on. He was different, really different. He comes from a tribe named after the right hand strong, okay? Yet he's a left-hander. So he's pointed out as being really different, but he's different in a way that he's looked down on. He's different in a way that he's got this really obvious sign of weakness wherever he goes because he's using his left hand. Okay, so this odd left-hander is used by Israel to send tribute to the king, uh, this King Eglon of Moab, all right? And maybe this maybe they used the disabled guy to send the tribute because it made Israel sort of look like, you're all powerful, King Eglon, look, we'll, we'll send this left-handed guy to you to to drop off the tribute. You a big right-handed strong king, <laughs> you know, like we're just the weak left-handed handed nation. You know, we're trying to appease him. Or maybe it symbolized something like that. Or maybe it was like he was Ehud was just a bit of a nobody that they didn't really care if the king raged and killed him if the tribute wasn't enough, or Whatever, not sure, but anyway, let's verse. Let's read verse 16. And Ahud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. All right, so he makes a sword, he straps it to his right thigh. So, because he's a lefty on his right thigh, puts his setup completely backwards to how everyone else would have had it set up. No one's expecting to see a sword on their right side. Verse 17. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ahud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. Or, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, Silence! And all his attendants went out from his presence. So, once his tribute's delivered to really fat guy Eglon, all the other guys, all the other peeps that are carrying the tribute, they're away, they're safe. Ehud turns back, sorry, Ehud turns back, and he tells Eglon he's got a secret for him. Interestingly, Eglon probably, against his better... Like, normally he'd keep his guards and his servants around, you know, like if there's this foreign sort of guy, like, is he assassin? Who knows? Maybe Eglon was a bit proud here and thought, you know, what's this weakling left-handed guy going to do? You know, like, it's okay that I'm by myself. Look at the size of me. I'm a huge guy. He's a weak left-hander. Who knows? Maybe it was the fact that he said it was a secret, that he just wanted his entourage out. But he gets rid of all the entourage. It's only Eglon and Ehud in this room. Rookie move, Eglon. Rookie move. Verse 20. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ahud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. Now here come the coffee mug verses, verse 21. And Ahud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly and the dung came out. Verse twenty three. Then, then Ehud went out into the porch, and and I knew that, come to bite me, and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, hmm, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber, and they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their lord dead on the floor. Ahud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Seirah. So Ahud has buried a sword, probably about this long, about 45 centimetres, into Eglon so deep that his fat has swallowed up the handle. And the sword tips poking out the back of him and it spills all the muck from his bowels onto the ground. I told you this would be a good seminary. This massive, massive dude, okay, if he probably had to get his to his size, he probably had a fair deal of tucker in him at any one time. It would have been a huge mess, like yuck, huge bowels, mess everywhere. It's a pretty vivid feral image, okay? And the smell was so terrible, so terrible that the guards outside, all his attendants, Thought that, he, like, thought that he was taking a dump, okay, on his throne. Not the royal throne, but his throne of the dunny kind, okay? That's what they thought was happening here. So they're so embarrassed to come in. They don't want to bust the king doing this. Oh, so vivid, this story. So anyway, this delay between, of the, this awkward delay of, do we go into the room, do we not, do we not do we, uh, what, what's going on? A- gives Ehud plenty of time to escape, run back, rally the troops, and come back. And they cut off Eglon's uh, occupying troops. They cut them off. They cut off um, their path for any reinforcements coming from Moab, so across the Jordan into Israel. They cut off their, you know, their backup. They slaughter the 10,000 Moabite troops that are occupying in the Israel at the moment. Those treacherous distant relatives got it. Okay? So here's Ahud. God's raised up judge and he secures peace for Israel for 80 years, which is the most, the longest period of peace that we read of in Judges. After any of the judges, it's secured here by this left-handed dude, okay? So the longest reign of peace is preceded by this culturally weak man using what he had to throw off the shackles of, you know, foreign rebellion and occupation, sorry, by a gruesome assassination. Good summary? What an event. What a story. This must be so unique, hey? Why isn't the Bible full of more of this stuff? Well, the funny thing is though, yeah, aside from the gruesome details, the Bible is full of this stuff. The Bible is full of nobodies doing the awesome work. Um, this, this, this is not unique in the Bible, There's so many accounts of like busted, broken people, weaklings, weaklings being used for God's work in this world because that's the way God rolls. That's what he loves to do. This is Paul to the messed up church in Corinth in the first chapter of the first first Corinthians. So, you know, he's breaking the ice here and these guys were, had some crazy stuff going on as Adrian mentioned in Luke and Nicole's wedding thing yesterday, you know, with the love passages and then you talked about all the other stuff going on there. That was a good move, man. Um, chapter 1, verse 26. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what was low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. All right. So, God uses the lowly, God uses these nobodies. So, from an earthly perspective, it's, it's quite possible that no one paid any, if much, attention at all to Ehud as he was growing up. It's likely no one ever looked at him in any sort of admirable kind of way. Until he killed Eglon, went and rallied the troops, and the people saw what he'd done, how he'd killed Eglon, and then they decided to follow him. Then he was admirable. Okay, in many ways, he's kind of like like that pimply-faced teenager with like a whole head braced for his teeth, teeth in like some teen movie, you know? Um, he's that pimply-faced dweeb, kind of like the complete loser that no one cares, like you could walk past in the hallway and not even see. Just no one cares about them. Until though, in his 20s, he becomes a tech billionaire. Starts working out, okay? The head brace gives way to these perfect teeth and all the ladies then are just, <laughs> you know? That's the kind of guy, that, that's the transformation that's happened here with Ehud. So initially, Ehud was a nobody in the world's eyes. Have you ever felt like a nobody before? Like just completely run of the mill, nothing special. Nothing special, just, just a general Joe Blow. Always looking at other people who you think are better than you. Yeah? Yeah, it's all right. Me too. I've been there. Still am half the time. (laughs) It's because this lesson in Ehud, okay, is that through our weakness, like our physical disabilities, our illness, our lack of resources, our mediocrity, bordering on loser attributes, whatever, God wants to get into them and He wants to make great things happen for Him out of them. And Ehud understood this when, when he met God and God raised him up. He could have kept dumping off that tribute to Eglon like a dumb slave every month. Okay? He could have kept doing that every month. But he realized that his circumstances were unique. He was shown that his circumstances were unique. Okay? And that they could be used powerfully. So he made a sword, set a plan, and strapped it where no guard would think to look for it. So what weak circumstances are unique to you? Like, maybe you suffer from a weak, like a chronic illness, you know, like a pain, lowly position in life. Maybe that allows you to speak to other people who are in similar positions. I'm not sure. But please, like, if we have a moment now, just, just think, like, just settle your heart. If God brings something on your mind now, don't ignore it, okay? Make your sword, make your plan, And pursue that with all you have for this year, 2019, as we go into that deeper water, those deeper stages of life. If you've got a weakness, commit it to God and ask him how he can use it. And how then, out of that, you can boast all the more about how his greatness is magnified through it. See, Paul talked about his weakness to that same Corinthian church in his next next, um, uh, letter to them. About how God's power is made perfect. Now, think of this verse like, God's power made perfect. A lot of us think that God is already ultimately powerful, and how could his power be any more perfect? But what does Paul say in Corinthians? It says, Your power is made perfect where? In weakness. Right, see, God's power blasts into this world when His people own their weaknesses, when they cry out for His help in their weakness, and then, and then are able to then point to the insane and crazy things that God accomplishes through them in spite of their weaknesses. Okay? So... Here's the thing if if you came to this sermon and you thought the world of yourself and you thought there was nothing that you could do wrong, that you had all your ducks lined up, that you were perfect, then there is nothing here for you. All right? But if you're a weak loser, not just a left handed, like a right handed, weak loser, like me, all right? If you're a right handed, weak loser and you understand the flaws you have, then, you know, praise God that you've got those flaws because you've got awesome grounds for God to work through because you know how great you aren't hey so that will show god as being so much greater all right you can't boast about how good you are all right because you know you're weak so when you're not boasting and you're giving full credit to the lord then you're not muddying up those waters you're not muddying up like that glory that's meant for him okay you know it's not coming from yourself so this year 2019 willowburn deep water We want to go into the deep water and we want to flounder around or over our heads a little bit. Maybe this is your deep water for this year. Maybe it's to go and start owning these weaknesses. When everything seems like overwhelming, okay, just commit yourself past your strong attributes. We all know what you're good at. Commit yourself to your weak attributes. The weakest parts of you. Because that's where God does His most obvious work. He does His most powerful work. His greatest work is going to be done out of those weak parts of you, and in your life. And so, being a human in this fallen world, we understand this weakness. Like it's just part of the job description. We get it. We all we all have our problems. We all have our flaws. Um, we've got our faults. Whether it's you know like a, a limp right hand, chronic illness, chronic pain. You know, like you just at the born at the bottom of the pile, maybe. Okay. We need help. We need help to overcome and compensate for those weaknesses. Hey. And us as Christian humans, like we are dependent and we're reliant on God's strength for that, for using our weakness for great things. But here's the pinch, right? Here's where we come back to Jesus. As God, Jesus came to us as humans in a state of weakness to be our savior from our weakness. Alright, that might require a little bit of thinking. It's probably a heavy sentence. Our Saviour God came to rescue us from our weakness by first becoming to us, one of us, in a position of weakness. See, in stories of old, and like all other religions and things of the world, um, the, the little G gods, they always came to meet humans as either, t- you know, sort of like Titan-like things, strong warriors, wise sages, you know, all-powerful beings, right. Never do they come to the earth as a helpless little baby. Never. A lowest little baby born into like the lowest social rung. Okay? To be raised in some little backwater township. That's just crazy. No, no powerful beings, almighty gods don't do that. But this is what Jesus did. This is Jesus' story. And Jesus was deemed by many as not being good enough to be the Messiah. Like, how could he be? People used to say, hey, is that Jesus, like, Joe the tradie's son? It's, It's just Jesus. Or what about, like, can anything good come out of that filthy bogan joint called Nazareth? It's just Nazareth. And Isaiah the prophet, he refers forward in time to Jesus. Like, in Isaiah 53, he says... Um, about Jesus, looking forward to the Messiah, he said that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. So, in other words, Jesus didn't look at, show up looking like a supermodel. Well, that's not really a compliment, anyway, is it? Like supermodels always look a bit stick insecty, don't they? But what I'm saying is, like, he's not—he wasn't a perfect person. He didn't show up and then be on the cover of like GQ or Men's Health or something, or he wasn't, he didn't have like a beautiful person, inst- he wasn't a beautiful person Instagram influencer or something, you know? Like he wasn't, all right? He would have fit into our realm of reality. He would have fit into my realm of reality, like just a pasty white guy with a dad bod. Actually, none of those things. He wasn't pasty white, he would have beautiful olive skin, and he wasn't a dad, so he didn't have the dad bod. But you know what I mean, like he was a Middle Eastern equivalent of just the average, average bloke. All right? And to those around him, like he was an unlikely savior, even the closest people, his disciples who loved him with him all the time, he was surpri- they were surprised when he rose from the dead, even though Jesus told them how many times that he was going to do it, they're still surprised. Yet Jesus, none of Jesus' really seeming, seeming flaws were real, really. What humans looked at as flaws weren't, because he was truly God, truly man. He was the creator king in the shape of his needy and weak, dependent creation. He came to us as one of us. And just like Ehud, okay, when people looked at him, they failed to realize. They failed to realize and they failed to anticipate the great rescue plan, the great victory that God would accomplish through him. Yeah? Because Jesus is the ultimate and the greater Ehud. Jesus is the saviour of the world, the saviour of all weak losers, right hands, left hands, all of us, like me, and like you. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Can you go to the next slide, please, Tay? going to come into a time of communion and I just had this picture as Ben was speaking of um, that moment where the doors close after the Moab king says silence and it's and you've got the the judge the savior of Israel one-on-one with his enemy and you think you know I've got a message from God for you and out comes the sword and it's this amazing moment and then I couldn't help but think about the cross at that as well. And you think of, like in those final moments of Jesus' life, when, you know, you can almost see the devil face to face with him in those last few moments. And Jesus almost saying, I've got a message from God. But a sword doesn't come out. Um, there's not this triumphant trumpet blow or anything like that. There's a a dying. And I think it's such a cool story to think that we can look back and learn about that and then think of our savior who has been put so well um gave his life and suffered and you know the other side our enemy the devil death was not expecting that and and i love how that story ends with and israel had 80 years of rest peace and you think for us we don't just have eighty years; we have an eternity of rest. Um, so I want us to think about that that picture of that you know that fat guy that the king the that messy thing, and yet then think of the cross as well as our savior is has his moment, but it's in the most unexpected way and it's is him giving his life um, and purchasing our freedom and and coming back to life three days later so Um, um, just for the kids as well I know our kids ask all the time about communion and we talk to them about it but again this meal there's nothing magical about this, kids there's no that bread is not special bread in the sense that it's church bread it's not christian bread I don't even know who made it maybe non-christians made it maybe not yeah talk about it's a side story um but We're taking this bread and we're drinking this cup because it represents something really special. It represents Jesus' body being broken on the cross. And once Jesus' body was broken, out came his blood. And we drink the cup to remember. So this is a remembrance meal when we think about what Jesus has done for us. So... I just want to encourage you, um, adults and kids, to think about that. When you take the bread, when you're chewing over it, think about the story we've just heard about God saving Israel and think about the bigger picture of that in Jesus coming for us and saving us. So as you chew the bread, think about him on the cross. Think about what we sung about earlier about our sins being washed away because of his perfect blood. So in your own time, I just encourage you to um, take the bread and eat it and we'll hold the cup and we'll share that together and then we'll we'll finish. I might just pray, Lord well, Jesus, thank you for that story that gives us a glimpse into how you've met with people in years past, years and years ago, and yet you heard your people's cry, Lord, even though they were sinners, they were losers, they weren't perfect people, and yet out of that you saved them. And we think about our story now, Lord, we are just like them. We have times where we turn away from you. Times where we cry out to you. And you have given us a saviour. And not just one that has saved us from one battle, but has saved us for all eternity. Saved us from our sins. Oh, Lord Jesus, as we eat, as we chew this bread, would you remind us of your body broken for us. As we drink this cup, would you remind us of the blood that flowed out from your perfect body, the Lamb of God given for us? And in these few moments as we celebrate and remember you, would you change us? Would you make us ones that that love you and love others in Jesus' name?